0: A few weeks ago, Pope Francis announced that the Catholic Church could not and would not bless same-sex unions, and this announcement sent the whole world into an uproar. Don Lemon of CNN was particularly angry about this, and he responded by correcting Catholics and evangelicals by saying, God is not about hindering people or even judging them. Well, Sadly, his sentiments rule the day in this your truth, my truth, judge not society that we live in. And Don Lemon is blind. He is blind to the irony of his own words, but he has actually flipped the script on God. He has ascended the throne where now he is judging the one who made him. But Psalm 90 restores order to this upside down world of ours because it puts God and it puts us in our rightful places. It is a sobering song because it tells us the truth about what we are, dust, here for a moment and gone the next. It reminds us that for all of our ambition and efforts that after a few years, we're going to dissolve back into the ground, the works of our hands forgotten. It reminds us that even if by God's grace, there are pleasures in this world, the greater reality is it is mostly toil and trouble. And Psalm 90 is honest about why this is true. It gives a clear and reasonable answer to the question that has plagued humanity for its entire existence. Why is there suffering in this world? Why do we die? Now, you may not like the answer, and to many, this psalm tastes like cough syrup, right? You wanna spit it out or you wanna chase it down fast with something to help you forget the bitterness. But for the Christian, Psalm 90 is medicine for the soul. After you've tasted the bitterness of it, there is healing. After you swallow the hard realities, this true healing truth emerges, that God's steadfast love satisfies and fills our short and difficult lives with eternal significance. I'm gonna say that again, because this is what Psalm 90 teaches, that God's steadfast love satisfies and fills our short and difficult lives with eternal significance. Okay, let's pray and we'll dive right in. Eternal God, use these truths from your word today to sober us where needed, but also to fill us with hope and energy to use our short lives for your glory. Establish the work of my hands today, Lord. It is nothing if you don't. And pray that you would use my small efforts to accomplish your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as usual, I'm going to speak first about the context of the psalm, and then the content, and then we'll draw four conclusions. So Psalm 90 opens Book 4 of the Psalter. Book 4 closes in Psalm 106. If you remember, the first two books of the Psalter highlight the life of King David. And Book 3 reveals the failure of the Davidic line, right? So out of 20 kings of Judah, only seven of them were mostly faithful to God. And Israel had to face the facts. Not one of those sons of David's could be the anointed king from Psalm 2. Book three was then compiled in exile, and it is filled with laments and mourning. Well then, in book four, it's as if Israel reboots. They get up, they take off their mourning clothes, they wash their faces, and they begin to tackle the problem. They know that David's line has failed, so what they really need is for God himself to be king in Israel. And what you find in Book 4 are many Psalms that look back to a time before David. They search deep into Israel's history long before the institution of the king. In fact, the writers of the book look as far back as Samuel, Moses, and even Abraham. In all of Book 4, there is little to no mention of the Davidic king. Okay, Book 4 may have been compiled after Judah returned from Babylon, and they began to rebuild the city and the temple. This return was like another exodus for Israel. So they were again in bondage in a foreign land, but God gathered them together and led them home. And the writers of this book return to that theme over and over again, the theme of exodus you'll see all throughout book four. But the tone is very different in this book from the previous three books. Praise Psalms in this book now begin to eclipse the laments that we've had so many of in the first three. So Israel has emerged from another exile, that's what you need to think of in book four, and they're wanting to make God their true home and their true king. Well, Psalm 90 opens the fourth book with sobering, but when you really grasp it, liberating truths. It gives an answer to the suffering and the laments of the previous books, and it offers a pathway forward. It tells us how we can be satisfied and how we can sing for joy all our days. Moses wrote this prayer, and in the superscript, he's called the man of God. So in the Old Testament, that designation would mean prophet. In the new, it would mean pastor. Moses is mentioned in seven out of the 17 Psalms in Book 4, so again, they're looking back into their history, but he is not actually mentioned anywhere else in the Psalms, except in Psalm 77, which we covered a few weeks ago. Okay, We are not told why Moses wrote this prayer, but it doesn't really matter. Okay, As I once heard Kathleen Nielsen say, the Psalms are like stretchy pants. Okay? So like stretchy pants kind of expand and contract so that they can fit any body, the psalms expand and contract to fit any circumstance. We don't have to share Moses' exact experience to recognize the truths of Psalm 90. This prayer is as useful to us now as it was to Israel then. Okay, let's look now at the content. Think of this psalm like trying to build a house it tells us the right foundation for the structure in the first section, and then in the second section it gives us necessary info about the landscape where we're building, and in the third section it gives us the building permits. So first, the foundation, this is in the first four verses. The foundation is the eternal God. Okay, these verses are all about God's eternality. He was God before he created the world in verse two. He is God after creation and still God after the fall in verse three. He has been God for so many years that his perspective on time is very different than ours. So a millennia in verse four seems like just one day or even just a two hour shift in the night. So when you're a kid, we talked about this a few minutes ago, you feel like each day is interminable. Do you remember that feeling when you were two and three? Time is for spending, and you have a wealth of it. If you tell a young kid that he is going to Disney World in two months, well, you will regret it every day for two months, because to him, two months is an eternity. But as you age, you begin to recognize just how short life is Two months is nothing by the time you're 30. Two years is nothing by the time you're 50. You've forgotten an entire decade of memories by the time you're 70. The more years you've lived, the shorter each year seems. Well, the eternal God's perspective is that a millennia is nothing because it accounts for only a small fraction of his existence. Well, to further drive home the point of God's eternality, Moses compares the everlasting God to finite humans in verses two and three. So verse three reminds us of the creation account where God took dust from the ground and he shaped it and then he breathed his own life into it. But it also reminds us of Genesis 3.19 where God tells Adam the consequences of his rebellion. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There is simply no comparison between our short human lives and the eternality of God. Hundreds of trillions of people pop onto the stage in the many years of God's long life. They shine for a moment and then they're gone, replaced by another and another and another. And the eternal God rules over all of them, giving life and then returning it to the dust. He never grows weary, he never changes, his strength never diminishes. He will go on tirelessly ruling over his creatures forever. And yet, this God, this eternal God, is our dwelling place. See, Israel knew something about homelessness. The patriarchs wandered around for years with no home. In Egypt, they were foreigners. Even after the exodus, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then, after their exile they were, they were exiled, homeless again, and even after they returned from Babylon, their home was never the same, because God's spirit had left the temple, and it never came back. They still had enemies on every side. They would be carried off to exile again by Alexander the Great, and then Rome would come along and annex their entire country into its empire. And of course, their modern history is equally devastating. Israel has spent much of its life homeless. So Moses here reminds them that their home is not the land, it's not the city, it's not their beautiful temple and all the trappings. It's something much more permanent. The eternal God is their home and he is our home. And without God as our home or our foundation, all our efforts to build anything in this world will crumble. Let's look at the landscape next in verses five through 11. This section exposes the truth about the place we're trying to build our homes. In this section, what was hinted at in verse four is now fully explained. We're told about the nature of life and we're told why life is this way. So first, our lives are short. Moses compares the brevity of life to a dream in verse five. Okay, so a few of our most vivid dreams may stick with us, right? But most of them just kind of evaporate once we awake. We try to kind of reach out and grasp the details, but they just slip between our fingers. In verses 5 and 6, Moses compares our lives to grass. Okay, it has such a promising beginning. It's lush and green and wet on a warm summer morning, but by late afternoon, it's in the scorching heat, it's dry and brown. We get one day in the sun until we're recalled. Or as Moses predicts in verse 10, we get 70, maybe 80 years in these bodies of dust. But not only are our lives short, they are difficult. Look at that second part of verse 10. It says, their span is but toil and trouble. Okay, this toil and trouble speaks of the difficulty of life outside the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were first exiled. Toil and trouble is just a poetic way of speaking about the hard realities of life. It reminds us that evil is ever-present in this world. It's in our own hearts, it's in the hearts of our neighbors, it's in the natural world. Because of sin, we toil to eat, we toil to house ourselves, we labor to keep our roof from falling down, to keep the cold at bay, to keep the creatures and the critters from getting in. We toil, we toil, and we toil, and we make little progress, and then we have to get up again and do it all, all the same things the next day. And to make things more difficult, as we toil, we see our strength diminish, our minds lose their elasticity, our work falls apart, and we bring our years to end like a sigh, it says in verse nine. We are unsatisfied and beaten down by our short, troubled existence. Well, why is it like this? Well, Moses tells us exactly why. He says it's because God is angry. Verse seven says we are brought to an end by his anger and by his wrath, we are dismayed. Verse nine, for all our days pass away under your wrath. But why is God angry? Verse eight is specific. It tells us he has set our iniquities before him our secret sins in the light of his presence. God is angry because of sin. And God sees all the sin, not one of them has escaped his notice, not even the sins we are still unaware of, not the ones we justify, or the ones we kind of coddle and hide. He did not create us to be this way. And all these sins vex his holiness, and his character demands that he punish them. Okay, this is the sobering truth of the psalm. God's anger at human sin is what makes our lives short and difficult. In verse 11, Moses concludes this landscape section with an invitation to reflect on this truth. He asks, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And this is the pivotal point of the psalm. How you answer that question makes all the difference, both in this world and in the next. If you answer the question, not me, I never think about God's wrath, then this psalm is here to sober you. Don't be like the rest of the world who run from the truth and further and further away from God. Don't think that you can escape this reality by filling in the margins of your life with distractions. Take the cough syrup, it will heal you. Don't harden your heart to the truth like Pharaoh or like Israel. Don't lie to yourself about death. Death is judgment for sin, it comes quickly. Death is not an escape, it is not the end. Don't believe for a moment that you can overcome the futility of life with positive thinking. Don't deceive yourself. You cannot make your own way in this world. We don't have the power within us to escape this futility we feel in life. If you do not consider the truths of Psalm 90, your life will have no lasting significance. And you will have to face this truth one day. If you don't consider God's anger now, you will be dismayed by God's wrath. But if your home, if God is your home, then your heart responds very differently to this question, who considers the power of your anger? Well, our hearts cry out, we do. As God's people, we consider these hard realities because they make us wise. That's what we'll see in part three, the building permits. In this section, Moses models the right response to these hard realities. Instead of running from God and chasing down that bitter syrup with something sweet, he runs to God in prayer. He petitions God five times here. He's praying in a way that only someone who understand God's eternality and his settled disposition towards sin, only people who understand that will pray this way. Okay, we see how he prays in the five verbs teach, return, satisfy, show, and establish. Teach, we'll talk about that one first. This is the sobering song. If we have considered the power of God's wrath, then our hearts sing out like Moses in verse 12. Why don't you read that one with me? This is the sobering song. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Okay, God's people are appropriately sobered by the truths of the previous section. Rather than being undone by them, we are trained by them trained by these truths to call out to the God who is not the, only the eternal creator and just judge, but who is also our home. The shortness of our lives teaches us to turn time and time again to God, the only one who can bring eternal value to our short years. This is wisdom, acknowledging and submitting to these truths. Next, Moses petitions God to return in verse 13. For the first time in this psalm, Moses uses God's covenant name here, Yahweh. And when you see the Lord in all capital letters like this, you should remember how God describes himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. Remember, he says, I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God who forgives iniquity, rebellion and sin. This, is how God relates to his people. He no longer relates to people according to his wrath or according to their sin. Now he may, he may rebuke and he may discipline, but only as a loving father and not as an angry judge. So Moses pleads with this God to return And this is the kind of language Israel used throughout their history after they had sinned and had experienced God's judgment. They would plead with God to turn back to them like we saw in Psalm 80. Turn back, forgive our sins, and live with us once more. This word return is also the same word that God uses back in verse three when he returns man to dust. But here God's people are boldly speaking that word back to God. In the parallel line, Moses says, have pity on your servants, calling on God to be who he says he is. God has said he is merciful. He has made a covenant with them to forgive sins. And Moses boldly calls on God to be faithful to that covenant. He calls on God, honor your promises. The next petition comes in verse 14, and it tells us what life can be like if we consider these truths. And this is the class theme verse. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Without God's covenant love, there is no meaning in this life. But with God's love, joy and satisfaction are absolutely possible. That word satisfied is the same word we use to say we're full after a good meal. So we don't need or want anything else, we're satisfied. This is a satisfaction that is soberly aware of what life outside God's love is like. This is a joy and a fullness that is especially satisfying because we understand what we have been spared. Verse 15 tells us that joy and gladness are possible even in the harsh landscape of section two. It says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. If God is our God, we can stare evil and futility in the face and still sing the song of the blessed. Praise the Lord. Joy is possible in this world because we know that the eternal God loves us. But there is more. Our lives are significant because God loves us, but also because he shows us his work and glorious power. That's Moses' fourth petition in verse 16. He asked God to show them his work and to reveal his glorious power. And he specifically asked for God to reveal it to their children. So don't forget that Moses wrote this prayer for the Exodus generation people who saw firsthand God's work and power in Egypt and then again at the Red Sea. They had been continual witnesses of God's work on their behalf. Consigned as they were to just roam the wilderness for 40 years, Israel still witnessed God's miraculous work as he provided for their every need. I mean bread from heaven, water from rocks, he even kept their clothes and shoes from wearing out during those 40 long years. And once you have seen God's work for yourself, you want nothing more than to keep seeing it. And you want your children to see it. You want the blessings of being God's child to extend to your children and your grandchildren after you die, and that is what Moses is praying for. Okay, that Exodus generation all died in the wilderness but God faithfully led their children into the promised land. He parted the Jordan River for them as he had the Red Sea for their parents. He walked before them and he conquered their enemies and settled them into the promised land. Well, we too have seen God work. Okay, we were not eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we have heard and we have read the testimonies of those who were. And we've seen God's unmistakable power at work in our own lives, first in salvation and now in our sanctification. And we need him to keep working. What meaning is there in life if God has stopped working? And we need to be hungry, just like Moses, to see more of God's work and more of his power in our lives and in our world. So we pray, just like Moses. In the face of the futility of life, we ask the Lord to keep working and to keep showing us his power, both to us and to our children. Fifth and finally, Moses petitions the Lord to establish the work of our hands. This is the final word of the prayer, and it's repeated twice for emphasis. Okay, the Psalm opens with a description of the glorious work of God in creation and then it describes God's works of judgment. Then Moses pleads that we may continue to see God's work. Okay, well at the end of the Psalm, Moses returns to this theme of work, but this time he's not talking about God's work, he's talking about ours. Like the God in whose image we are made, we also work. Moses intentionally juxtaposes our work with God's work in the Psalm, just like he intentionally juxtaposes God's eternality with our finite lives. Okay, we cannot do the powerful and glorious things that only God can do, but when God looks with favor on us and establishes the work of our hands, our work too becomes glorious and eternally significant. Okay, this psalm reminds us how small we are, right? But this last petition doesn't humble us further, it actually exalts us. It turns the small labors of our hands into eternally significant labors of love for God. And in God's perfectly efficient economy, he takes these little works of our hands and he uses them to complete his purposes. In this way, our little works become God's glorious works. So four conclusions on this psalm. And the first one is do not devalue any of the work God has given you to do. Okay, when you're tempted to see all the mundane labors of your life as futility and insignificant, return to this psalm. When God establishes the work of your hands, he takes your smallest contributions and infuses them with an eternal significance. When God establishes the work of your hands, he delights in your labors, just like he does in his own work. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as to the Lord. If you're a mom or a grandma, love and nurture your children well so that you prepare them to receive the love of God. Provide for the poor and needy, and you are partnering with God who declares himself a father to the fatherless. Take the time to speak kindly to an outcast of society, and you give him the glimpse, just a glimpse of the joy and significance his life can find in the eternal God. You share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor, and your small, wavering words become the bread of life to a starving soul. These small acts are nothing unless they are established by God, but when God establishes them, they have infinite value. Two, pray like Moses. Speak boldly to the Lord. Moses isn't being presumptuous with God. He is praying exactly the way God wants us to pray. God wants us to know him and understand what he is like. He wants us to speak with him according to that knowledge. So tell God what you know about him. Tell him what he's like. Remind him of his promises and call on him to act according to his character. I mean, when was the last time you reminded the Lord of his promises and then asked him to honor it? So if you are a widow, remind God that he promises to care for widows. If you are in need, remind God he has promised to supply all your needs. If you are alone and afraid, remind God that he has promised to be with you always. If you have sinned, remind God he has promised to forgive you. And then say, do what you've promised, Lord. Be bold, this is how God wants us to pray. Okay, number three, for God's children, even death, has great meaning and significance. In Psalm 90, when God returns man to dust, it is judgment on sinners, but not for his children. When God speaks return to you, it is spoken in love. It is the end of your exile. It is the end of all your wilderness wanderings. You are called right into the glorious presence of God, where you will live forever. You will never be forgotten. Well, who else can make something as futile as death seem beautiful? But God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because of God's steadfast love, your life and even your death is full of value and meaning. And then four, 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. We can have this relationship with God. God can be our home only through Jesus. So has God promised to judge mankind for his sin? Yes. He poured out his anger and judgment on Jesus so that no more wrath and no more judgment remains for those who have put their faith in him. Amen? Did God promise to save mankind and to reverse reverse all the awful things that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? Yes, he sent Jesus to bear the judgment, to toil and to suffer through the toil and trouble of this world and to absorb the wrath of God so that through him he can save us and he can make all things new, amen? Has God made a covenant with us to love and never forsake us? Yes. Jesus gave his life's blood to enact that covenant. He has washed away our sins. We have become the very children of God, and God will never abandon his own. Amen. Has God promised to forgive our sins? Yes. They were judged and punished long ago in Jesus. Amen. Has God promised to hear our prayers? Yes. Like Moses for the Israelites, Jesus lives to pray and intercede for us, but unlike Moses, he will do this forever. Amen. Amen. Has God promised to make our redeemed lives significant? Yes. Our work is never in vain in the Lord. Amen. Has God promised to redeem our lives from the grave? Yes, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen? Amen. Has God promised to be our eternal home? Yes. Jesus said, I am going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen? All these promises are ours through Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Teach us to number our days, Lord, that we may be wise. Forgive our sins as you have promised in Jesus' name. And satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may sing and rejoice and be glad all our days. And show us and our children your glorious work, O God and establish our own work. Take these little offerings of our hands and use them for your great glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.